Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai, welcome to Q&A. Hare rā tāpō, ko Jessica Much Makaiaho. Today, exclusive details from a minister on how the government will change alcohol laws. What I have heard from communities is they want to see these laws changed and changed immediately. Then, after two Kiwis were held in Iran, we talked to a former prisoner of the regime. And the big tourist-laden cruise ships are back, but some aren't so happy. I'm glad they're all staying on the ship because obviously... Well, they weren't actually, because they, they had... No, no. We begin today with Justice Minister Kitty Allen in her first sit-down TV interview since taking over the portfolio in June. With just a year to go until the election, she's revealing a huge programme of work, starting by pushing go on long-stalled reforms on alcohol laws. The minister's first target is scrapping an appeals process that critics say allow vested interests to push ahead with making booze available, even if the local community opposes it. Currently, councils can create provisional local alcohol policies that propose controls on opening hours and store locations. But to put them in place, councils have to pass a built-in appeals process first. That's landed some councils in lengthy legal battles with the likes of supermarkets and liquor outlets. In the 10 years since the law was passed to allow for local alcohol policies, some large councils like Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch haven't been able to introduce them. The government also wants to make it easier for anyone to object to applications for a liquor licence by making licensing hearings less formal and removing the ability to cross-examine people. The Minister wants to get all of these changes through Parliament by next year's election. The second part of the government's alcohol law reform starts early next year. That'll look into issues like the price of booze, how it's advertised and what alcohol companies sponsor. The government is also looking at how ALSIC could tighten liquor laws to reduce harm. With that now on the agenda, I started by asking Justice Minister Kitty Allen what her top priorities are in the role. Well, number one uh, item, given where we are in the electoral cycle, given I've come in really at the fifth year and we've got a short term to run, system improvements, uh, access to justice, and we've got uh, multiple, uh, I guess, levers that we're working on there. But there's also really the pressing issues of the day. Uh, New Zealanders, rightly so, want to feel safe and feel safe in their homes uh, when they're conducting their business. And how concerning is it that they don't at the moment? Because that's gonna be a big issue in the lead up to the election. Yeah, so a couple of things there, I think. Uh, I think it's great that we're seeing uh, more open reporting on um, what's happening behind closed doors in the courts. So that's as a consequence of us actually bolstering public interest journalism funding. And so I'm pleased to see that there is more uh, stories because they tell the stories of our victims. You've got to put that in context, though. Uh, New Zealand alongside other countries like uh, Australia, Canada, UK, we've all seen over the past 10 years decline in criminal activity. Uh, now that there's some system design components to that. But I think 
what, so my job essentially, and as a good governor and as a part of our government, what we've got to do is really make sure that we're not just responding to dogma and dog whistling about, you know, poor people over there, but we're actually making, when we're pulling these legislative regulatory levers, that what we're doing is not creating more harm. We know that the more people that we chuck into jails, the, the, we know from a cost perspective, so social justice side of the side, we know just from a cost perspective, the earlier people go into jail, the more they are going to cost the taxpayer over the course of their lifetime, let alone intergenerationally. That work was done under the previous national government. We know that. But we also know that if we're putting people into jail earlier, the more likely we will have more victims. So if the call is, the catch cry is from the public, we want to feel safer, our job as responsible governors is to make sure that the levers that we pull as we make amendments in the criminal justice system don't ultimately lead to more harm. Let's talk about alcohol. You've got an announcement you want to make with us this morning. Tell me about what changes are on the way. Yes, so the issue with alcohol in New Zealand that we've got right now is that if you, sitting in, for example, South Auckland, I was out there a couple of weeks ago, I heard from community and community and community about the proliferation of the accessibility of alcohol stores in their backyard. 2012, we had uh, an overhaul of our liquor laws. Part of that was to ensure that there'd be more community design in how liquor could be sold, consumed uh, in our communities. What we've seen, though, over the last 10 years is a really legalistic system that uh, I've spoken to uh, high school principals, Māori wardens, church pastors, who are having to deal with the harms of alcohol in their communities on the day and so day basis. So you want to make changes to that aspect of it next year? This year, uh, I'll be introducing uh, the part one uh, I guess, phased approach. So we're going to be looking at all the procedural uh, barriers. That's how people participate in ensuring that the community voice is at the forefront. If I take an area like, um, let's take uh, local al alcohol plans. These plans are led by councils. They have a arduous kind of community consultation where people come in, it takes years to get over the line, but it's about communities designing what they want the regulations to look like. So that's the first part of your changes, it's and the second part you want to look at sponsorship, advertising, things like that. Why are you looking at two separate parts of that? Why not just do them together? Yeah, I think that Firstly, because what I have heard from communities is they want to see these laws change and change immediately, and I want to do that. It's probably it's, it's immediate. Uh, and if I take Auckland Council, Christchurch Council, Hamilton, you know, uh, Dunedin, up north, you've got all of these councils that have been working along for years that haven't been able to pass their LAPs. That needs to be sorted out. Communities need to be at the centre. But why not sort out sponsorship and advertising and things like that at the yeah, same time? no, with respect to that, let's be frank. New Zealanders, alcohol in New Zealanders, it's so ingrained in our culture. To address those broader issues, they're complex. They are going to take... Um, they're politically fraught too, is that one of the reasons? They're politically 
fraught, sure, but we're happy to take politically challenging decisions. I mean, that's why dealing with these first things, actually, that's going to be, uh, that's going to be just as politically fraught as well. I expect big challenges in that area, but it's the right thing to do. But with respect to marketing and uh, the way that um, those have broader implications about uh, funding and communities. Uh, there, there's a whole range of broader issues. For example, like sports sponsorship totally. at, at, low, at low levels with rugby and cricket and things like that. Totally. That's a huge big issue for me. What I don't want to do, and this is one of the key things I think about, that I hope to achieve in my time as a governor, is to not create further harm. And now look, that's a really fraught position to be in. The alcohol industry, which is creating harm, is also providing a very important fiscal resource for a ton of community sports teams and communities that we're ultimately trying to serve and protect. I want to make sure that we're not being too reactionary and that we've got a plan in place to address uh, the on-flow consequences. And so with those reforms, I expect that, and they, they're going to be the, the issues that are on the table, they're broad ranging, everything from alco pops through to uh, yeah, exactly. Sports advertising, the role of marketing. I mean, how close all... to schools, you know, those types of issues. They need, uh, I want to bring forward to my cabinet colleagues in the first instance and then to New Zealanders a really quite a broad range of reforms that we uh, can stand by. This is all sounding very familiar and uh, Green MP Chloe Sawbrick is probably yelling at the TV right now. She put up uh, some changes. What's different between with what you're proposing? Well, there are currently four members' bills in the ballot that deal with alcohol law reforming. What's the difference with her one that's oh, already yes, in process? So differences but no I, actually I want to get to that there are four um, bills members bills currently in the ballot box and they've been multiple over years this is an area which I don't think um, I think requires an all-of-government response I've got the levers when it comes to some of the policy and regulatory reforms but there is a public health campaign that has to sit alongside that. That requires other parts of government to come to the table. When we come into those part two reforms, which is the more substantive, kind of looking at the implications of, for example, if we're taking marketing out, where are we going to get the funding from? If we're looking at reducing harm, there's the public health component. That takes a government response. So I'm not of the mind to make these substantive reforms through members' bills. I think I admire in particular, I've got, you know, for 10 years, I've got Lydia, who's one of our new uh, MPs out in South Auckland. She's been at the forefront of fighting for her community's voice to be heard in these processes. I went out on the streets with her. These people are in the, this area of reform for, not for a short time, but this is a dedication of their lifetime to these issues. What they've told me is that these are the reforms that are going to change their lives immediately, how they're treated through that process, how they bring that community voice to the table. With respect to those broader issues, I've heard from basically almost all stakeholders saying, yep, we have to do it. How we do it is going to be critical, and I want to be confident when I bring together a broad suite of reforms that those will land and be enduring. There's also no doubt that the alcohol uh, lobby is very powerful. Do you feel the pressure from that? Because having this in two parts, I guess that raises in questions. Short, no, I don't, feel the, I don't feel stressed or worried about the alcohol lobby. They've had a huge 
amount of space to date. For example, I come back to the way that the local alcohol plans have been, the process in my view has been manipulated, it's been co-opted by uh, well-resourced parties that have taken up a lot of say. When you have lawyers flying in from internationally to come in and cross-examine a principal of a school in South Auckland, something's gone wrong. Now, no, I don't have any fear about any lobby interest groups. What I care about is that if I'm going to pull a regulatory tool, then I have to know and be very confident about what those consequences are. And I'm not confident that any of the members' bills in the ballot at the moment have adequately contemplated the uh, flow-through consequences and who will bear the brunt of those consequences. And I'm confident that I'll have the support of Anahila, Arena, Chloe, those people that have been ardent advocates for alcohol law reform, I'm confident they will support this bill. I want to talk about the huge backlog in the justice system at the moment. 150,000 cases were delayed because of COVID. When is the system going to catch up? Prior to COVID, let's be frank, prior to COVID, there was incredible stresses and concerns on the justice system. We go back to the reforms that came in in 2014 uh, for a period of time, uh, sorry, 2011, for a period of time, they'll say that there was a slight decrease for about a year or two, and then they started to see those delays pick up in 2014. It's an ongoing issue that the justice system has, by and large, been pretty defunct for some time. COVID merely exacerbated the, the, the situation. Multiple levers. Um, you've got a judicial-led response, effectively, uh, that's been set up. So they're looking, so we've got pilots undergoing at the moment about how we can reduce time. $11 million has gone into CPIP, which is looking at criminal procedures and how but you can get time efficiencies. When will we catch up, do you think? I, if I'm going to be very frank, there are multiple things. Like, the biggest tool that we need in my mind, from sitting in courtrooms day in, day out and see cases fall over again and again and again and be adjourned again and again and again, we won't adequately be able to catch up until our IT system catches up. This is how ridiculous it is. This, you've got a system right now where corrections can't talk to police, which can't talk to justice, which can't talk to OT. A judge comes and sees you in your first appearance, you're wanting to, uh, you've been held in remand overnight and he wants to let you go because your charges aren't so sufficient to hold you in there. He can't because his court system can't talk to the court system down the road to I find mean, out what's, what's, what's happening. I mean, that sounds ridiculous and it's like a Tim ridiculous country, so why don't we just fix it? Why don't, why, Correct. It's well, a you money know, yeah, yeah. No, no, I've set aside the money. The money's there. That's all locked and loaded. Uh, we've finally got a, uh, the budget responded to that, and I'm pleased to see that. Now it's systems and times. You've just seen, for example, IRD undertake a huge, big transformational program in terms of the IT systems. They were old. Clunky, so no money had been put aside for it. We've started that process. But I when think that's going to be... I think that this is going to take some time. I'm, I'm saying yes, yes. Years, not days, not weeks, not months. Yeah. But so, it's certainly a focus. And so what we can do is look at these trials. So you've got these trials, CPIP trials right now, running programs. Uh, where can we save efficiencies? If you look at a criminal justice process... I, I wanted to interrupt just to talk about one of those examples yeah. because a recent trial that we saw in some sectors were giving uh, lawyers $120 for having early um, guilty pleas. And from an outside perspective, that looks as though it was, it was filling some 
some gaps in the system. Did that work and why did you back away from that trial so quickly? Oh, no, I think that, that was unconstitutional actually, the incentivisation. Did it work though? Uh, I think that there'll be split views and we'll have a look in terms of time, but I'm going to ultimately say no. It doesn't work. It doesn't work to incentivise guilty pleas at any stage of any system ever. And we can't be either seen or actually incentivising lawyers to act in a particular way. At the That's same time, though, you've just... such a kick-up from... Uh, we've seen it from the courts, we saw it from practitioners. This is practitioners talking about themselves, you know, so they were saying this is so constitutionally profound that we cannot be doing this to ourselves and allowing the public to think that our justice system isn't actually working in the interest but of But don't we need to do something bold oh, yeah. and brave oh, totally. because you've just highlighted oh, how, totally. how broken the system is? Absolutely. You need to do something bold and brave and constitutionally sound. Uh, and so that's where I think that there are a range of areas, like I was saying, you know, there's, uh, there's different phases of the criminal justice system. We're looking at Instead of having five appearances, uh, sorry, instead of having like sometimes it's in excess of 10 appearances to get to an end outcome, we want to bring it back to what it should be, which is ultimately five if you go in from first appearance right through to sentencing. The system isn't working because the system currently isn't talking and there's multiple efficiencies that we can put in place. One of those things, one of the biggest things that I think that um, anybody will say who works in this area is around disclosure. Uh, police disclosing uh, their case on time in, in an efficient way. This has been a big finding uh, that we've made through the CPIP trial already. We can look at things like hardwiring requirements around timeframes that will have huge flow-through consequences because if people aren't getting uh, aren't getting the disclosure, they can't enter a plea or they can't do take the next steps. But that's been a big uh, it, that's one area where we can make efficiencies. After the break, the big questions about court cases we're not allowed to know about. Is name suppression working? I don't think so. Why not? Welcome back. If you've ever watched news stories from a courtroom, you've probably heard terms like prominent New Zealander or well-known sports star to describe otherwise unnamed defendants. For many, name suppression seems to be applied unfairly and inconsistently. So will Justice Minister Kitty Allen make changes? Is name suppression working? I don't think so. Why not? I think particularly in areas like sexual violence and sexual offending, I think that um, right now there's a current requirement that the automatic name suppression applies and then only once the case is completed and finalised can that victim therefore make an application at her own or his own cost um, to, have that, to have that name suppressed removal. I don't think that that's fair. I don't think that that's a victim-centric way of looking at uh, the way these rules apply and it's certainly something that I've sought fast-track advice on because I want to be able to make reforms in this area. More broadly, it looks as though uh, more powerful, influential and famous people are also getting uh, name suppression. How, how do you view that? Do you think that's fair? No, I don't. And I do think that's an adequate... Um, I think that that's a fair way of looking at the way that name suppression currently operates. If you're well-funded, well-resourced, then you can seek uh, to have your name suppressed for a range of different reasons. 
I, I don't think that that leads to just outcomes. And again, like I said, it's certainly an area that's in my, the top of my uh, priorities as it does fall under the access to justice and a victim-centric system. Because we see these high-profile cases where someone who's well-known is, is their name is able to be kept secret and there are reasons given like it'll affect their employment and it'll uh, affect their reputation. I mean, it just doesn't seem that that's particularly just. So how urgent is it to make those changes? I've sought uh, urgent advice on this particular area, I, as I, I agree with you. I don't think it's just, I don't think it's fair, and I don't think that New Zealanders looking in on the system think that the system is working adequately either. Do you also need to address uh, the fact that we operate in a global environment now? I mean, the Grace Mullane case was an example where uh, overseas media outlets were breaking the name suppression and it was easily accessible to people here. How do you address something like that? Well, uh, that's that's also, uh, it's a very accurate observation. You, uh, we're also operating with laws that were designed in a different time that don't adequately take in to consideration social media, our global environment, and that's essentially a part of the advice that I've got to get back. How can we make these rules fit for purpose? But so that, again, really focusing on the victim, that the victim gets their, uh, gets what they can expect from the justice system, which I don't think is adequately being addressed right now. A couple of things that I want to talk to you about while you're here. Tikanga has been one of the things that have been incorporated um, in the decision to quash the convictions for Peter Ellis. What do you make of that having been on, on in the justice system and now the minister for it? Mm. Look, Tikanga is a part of New Zealand's common law. We've seen a substantive body of jurisprudence now that has uh, seen it well embedded into our context. Uh, in terms of the way that Tikanga applies though across the board. This is a, I think it's a really interesting area for New Zealanders. Uh, we get to see how does how does New Zealand's common law, our values based here in our context, not over there, not over here, but just right here, how do we start to apply our value system in a way that makes sense for us? The Alice case was an interesting one. Uh, there you had a non-Maori person uh, saying, well. I, it was deceased, but the the you know the case there was, well, uh, tikanga is a part of our ordinary New Zealand jurisprudential environment. Therefore, I can lean into uh, these values that underpin the system. I think it's. I personally think you know we've moved beyond the days of where the haka is the mere sole expression of how we embrace Maori identity, tikanga into our ordinary New Zealand. Uh, identity as New Zealanders and this is another advancement of it and uh, it's been happening for many years and I think we all watch and wait to see how that continues to evolve. On another topic of hate speech, where are we at with that? I feel like this is a question we raise with the Justice Minister every time we talk. Yeah, I can promise you, I will make this promise to you, uh, I will be making announcements on hate speech by the end of this year. There are... Um, does that give it enough time to come into law before the next election? Yes. So you're guaranteeing that will go through? I guarantee that I'll be introducing law that I intend to have concluded and put into law by the next election, yes. Well, that's a big promise and a nice place to leave it. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Cheers.
If you're keen to contact the Q&A team, please do. These are our main platforms. Hit us up on email, Twitter or on Facebook. After the break, peaceful, serene, beautiful. And then the cruise ship showed up. Before COVID hit, the tiny but beautiful speck of New Zealand called Milford Sound was groaning under the weight of tourism, much like the rest of the region. Now the borders are back open, many locals are hoping things won't go back exactly to how they were before. Here's Fina Owen. A postcard perfect morning. Straight from Sydney, the celebrity eclipse with up to 2,800 passengers cruises up Milford Sound, taking some other tourists by surprise. When we came around the bend, it was like, oh my God, there's cruise ships here? Milford Opportunities, the group working on redesigning how tourism is done in the Milford area, has already proposed a ban on cruise ships to the Sound. But this summer, it's business as usual, and today there's talk ashore about a sick patient on board the Celebrity Eclipse. So right now somebody's been medevaced off the ship uh, and they'll be choppered from the Sound here to Dunedin Hospital. This transfer vessel carrying not only the patient, but 60 passengers from the ship who have elected to bus instead to the next port. Out on a tour boat, the ship's presence is being discussed. You wouldn't really think that a cruise ship kind of belongs in this kind of space? I'm glad they're all staying on the ship because obviously... Well, they weren't actually because they, they had... No, no, 60 people came off and oh they're going to gosh. go by bus. Uh... Oh, that's very strange because this should be quite a remote place. And some places, and I've seen it like in Venice, to me, I appreciate enjoying the natural environment without having a cruise ship here. So I, I think it's a bit off from what I would have expected. In Tiano, the morning buses from Queenstown have arrived for breakfast before heading out to the Sound. Drivers are wrapped to be back on the circuit. They're from Austria, uh, 22, and it's my first proper tour in two and a half years. 15th of March, 2020, the border closed. It was sayonara, that was it. So is it good to be back behind the wheel then? Fant oh, doing tours, yes, fantastic. Tiano businesses have noticed a sudden increase in visitor numbers to the town. Since the Australian school holidays started, it's just, it's just shot up. They're coming back in big numbers, it's really good to see. Buses are full and there's lots of people mill milling around. It's great to hear different accents throughout the restaurant. It's been a long time since we've heard that, so it's exciting times. But it means businesses are scrambling for staff. Some have to close midweek and local staff are often doing multiple jobs to help out. Pre-COVID, Tiano relied on backpackers. The people with the working holiday visas either haven't come in the country yet or because they had two years worth of savings and that pent-up desire to travel, they just haven't reached us yet. So, you know, they could still be coming, but um, anecdotally we've heard that they're not going to be here till maybe February time um, because they'll either be travelling or they're making their way here bit by bit. And anecdotally, the old freedom campers do seem to be missing from these landscapes. At a dock camp along the Milford Road, we may have struck some. 
my grandfather came to New Zealand a while ago, and he it was like the one place that he was like, you gotta go there. So we're just checking it out, we'll see. Yeah, okay, well I hope you have a good time here. <laughs> There's you. plenty of work if you want it. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> Steve and Kate Norris run guided tramps around Milford, and for their business, this October is busier than pre-COVID Octobers. Hey guys, how are you? Good. That's great for the Norrises, but they have the same old pre-COVID concerns about the pressure of numbers on Milford environs. Lots of talk about, you know, we've got this wonderful opportunity. Everyone sees that it's coming back in leaps and bounds now. Well, just before COVID, it was talking about, you know, hitting a million in the next year or two. Well, I could see that happening in the next two years, you know. Um, you mean a million going into Milford? Yeah, a million people on boats. Milford Opportunities' plan is to spread out visitor numbers more evenly. While free with a permit for Kiwis, international visitors would pay a fee and park and ride from Tiano. A hop-on, hop-off bus system is proposed with bus shelters and loos along the Milford Road. So the idea is to create areas of interest and activities along the Milford Corridor. The proposal for this area, Nobs Flat, is a couple of cycle trails. Park and ride situation is a great idea, and I don't, I'd be surprised if anyone in Tiana was against that. I could be wrong, but the majority of people want that. And um, but I'd like to think it wouldn't be the detriment of um, you know established commercial businesses. Um, like your own. So you want to take your own van through? Yeah, like particularly small businesses that can really offer um, value to the community and to Milford Sound. While the uncertainty around the plans can be stressful for Milford operators, locals are welcoming the rebranding of Tiano. It goes Queenstown the adventure capital, Tiano the nature capital. I think it's a great title for us here. You know, we are the starting point for you know a number of the great walks, and um, so if you know if we were recognised internationally around being that starting point, then that would be fantastic. Out on the Sound, the Celebrity Eclipse is off out into the Tasman Sea and headed for Port Chalmers. Once again, folks, thank you so much for uh, cruising with us. Back at the pier, a boat is loaded with tourists and ready to go. And on the airstrip, passengers have just had a flight to remember. The reorganisation of the Milford Village doesn't include an airstrip, but that final decision could be years away. Feasibility work for all the plans is underway and reporting back not expected until mid-2024 and then ministers will have tough decisions to make. Already the numbers are coming back, so if they're going to make decisions they've got to be made pretty smartly or the horse will have bolted. After the break, banks, supermarkets and petrol companies are making a killing. Should the taxman take a bigger cut? Welcome back to Q&A. Earlier this week, ANZ announced their full-year profits had hit record highs. In fact, all the banks have had a smashing year. So have the supermarkets and petrol companies. So is that fair? The Greens are this morning releasing a discussion document calling for windfall taxes on excess corporate profits. I sat down with their finance spokesperson Julianne Genta and started by asking why now? 
everyone in New Zealand should be able to make ends meet and afford the basics. And right now, people are really struggling with high prices at the supermarket, rents are rising, mortgage rates are rising, petrol is rising. Um, at the same time, the big corporates that dominate those sectors in New Zealand are raking in record profits. Uh, all around the world, we've seen countries reacting to the post-COVID inflation by taking steps like this. And indeed, in New Zealand, we have had these tools before. In World War I and World War II, New Zealand did have a windfall profit tax, an excess profit tax. I mean, that's how far you have to go back for when we've used it before. So is that a sign of, of something that, that is useful or something that isn't, perhaps? Um, I definitely think it's something that would be useful. Uh, it would raise revenue that government can then use to invest in things that help people through these hard times. A few big corporates making excess profits doesn't benefit anyone in New Zealand, except maybe you know, their investors and shareholders and their senior executives. If you take a step back though, at the moment our tax system is pretty simple and pretty user friendly. When you look at something like this, it's going to add in layers of complication. What's important is that the changes we make benefit all New Zealanders. And that's what we need a tax system that works for all New Zealanders. In this recent Oxfam report, they found that we were one of the worst countries in terms of wealth inequality, and some of that is due to our tax system not doing enough. Do you think that New Zealand companies are price gouging? Uh, there's no question the Commerce Commission report found that supermarkets were making excess profit of $1 million a day. Now, that's not right at a time when families are being forced to choose between paying their electricity bill, paying their rent, and getting food on the table. Let's dig into that then. So if you're, we're looking at supermarkets as the example where a windfall tax could apply, how do you define a supermarket? Is it a Foursquare? Is it a Costco? Is it a, the warehouse that have groceries? How would you define that? Um, I think it's entirely possible to find ways to define the sector that you're looking at. Um, there are only a few big corporates in each of these areas. And, you know, for the purposes of the Commerce Commission report, right, they had a clear definition of which companies they were looking at. Um, and they have a way of measuring what excess profit is. Now, excess profit is what's over and above what you would expect them to make just looking at um, the work that they're doing, the services they're providing, the efficiencies they're making. It's really clear in the last few years that a few big corporates, you know, whether it's banks, supermarkets, petrol companies, or the big energy companies, have made huge increases in profit. It's not due to what they're doing, it's due to external factors like government policy, uh, the current inflationary environment, and that's where it's appropriate to have a tool like this. But when it comes to supermarkets, don't you think that people will just adjust and adapt so that that doesn't apply to them? Don't you think we'll see companies wriggling around something like this? It's really important that we make sure there's no loopholes, and that's really the job of government, is to make sure that there aren't ways for people to avoid paying the tax that is due. Is it worth it, though? I mean, when you think about all of these rules and regulations to get a bit of cream from these big companies, is it worth all of the hassle? I think we can't afford to keep doing nothing in this area. You know, I mean, there has been a big call. The EU is looking at uh, windfall taxes. The US is looking at an excess profit tax. The economy's become very unbalanced in the last few decades. And in 
times of exceptional circumstances like a pandemic, uh, a wars, and, and really excessive inflationary environment, we've always needed government to come in to help rebalance things. It's super important that all New Zealanders are able to make ends meet and pay for the basics. And unfortunately, because of our market structure, there are a few big corporates in each of these sectors, and they are making excessive profits, essentially profiteering from the fact that Kiwis are having to pay more for the basics. What do you say to the argument though that this is just business and that's just the luck of the draw and it's not always going to be a pandemic? Um, well, there are exceptional circumstances and that's why we're calling for tools like this to be able to address those. I mean, that's the very nature of a windfall yeah. tax that is temporary, but what yeah. do you say to that argument that that's, that's life? Uh, well, I mean, ultimately, it's up to us to decide what kind of economy we want to have. And I would say most New, Zealand, most New Zealanders believe that everyone should be able to pay for food, their rent, their housing, uh, and the ability to get around. Is this the best way to do it, though? I mean, why not just put more resource into effectively tax using the tax levers that we have at the moment? Uh, one of the options in our paper is to just raise company tax rate to bring it more aligned with the trust rate back Wouldn't to 33%. And that's why we've put that in there as an option. There are certainly people who would argue that that is more simple and predictable. Um, I would argue it doesn't deal with these exceptional circumstances, um, but it could be a useful tool. And, it's, and it wouldn't really affect small businesses um, here in New Zealand because of the way our tax system works, uh, rate, getting the company tax rate back to 33%, where it was in most of the early 2000s, um, wouldn't affect small businesses. It would mean more revenue for government, and then government can use that revenue to invest in things that help save New Zealanders money on their energy bills, you know, like insulation and retrofits to housing. Uh, they can use it to pay for free public transport. All things that help New Zealanders in this time of high costs. Supermarkets is an obvious one. What other areas would you look to apply a windfall tax? Um, I would say we should be looking at the banks who, you know, the four big Australian-owned banks have raked in an extra, you know, six billion, a record six billion in profit in the last year. Uh, that is at a time when mortgage rates are rising and, um, you know, as a consequence, rents are also rising. So uh, that seems like an obvious sector. Uh, also, uh, petrol companies, you know, back in July we saw petrol prices didn't fall when oil prices did, and at the same time government had extended that discount on petrol tax to try and alleviate the pain for New Zealanders, uh, but the petrol companies were seeing these huge margins. When you have a look into the history of windfall taxes, Margaret Thatcher's name comes up uh, with gas companies and with the banks. I mean, do you think it worked there uh, in I the do, 80s? Yeah, I do think that despite there being some concerns about it affecting like bank stability, in reality, they saw that it did work. It did raise additional revenue that the government was able to use. I mean, and not I think exactly it was fair. a natural, natural fit. No, I, and I, you know, I have to uh, commend Margaret Thatcher on that particular policy that she looked at it and said, look, the banks are making these super high profits, not because of anything they've done, but because of a government policy which has 
seen interest rates rise. And it's really important in those circumstances that government is there to do the tax, to put in place the taxes and transfers that make sure that everybody is able to make ends meet. Another argument against windfall tax is this idea of quashing innovation because a company adjusts and, and makes a big profit and then the government comes in and says, we'll have that, thank you very much. Do you agree with that idea? Well, no, by definition, excess profit is not due to something that the corporations themselves have done. It's due to external circumstances. And if anything, if they're making these super high profits off doing nothing, there's a disincentive to innovate and to invest in R&D. They can just sit back and uh, get the money. But for how, <laughs> how can you know if that's happening with supermarkets? How do you know that they're not innovating as well as having um, these pandemic conditions? Well, economists have this concept. There's normal profit and there's super profit or excess profit. And um, you know the type of studies that the Commerce Commission does that the um, major energy users group has done looking at Meridian, for example, and they've found evidence of excess profit over quite a long period from Meridian. Uh, so it's, it's not difficult to identify when there are these circumstances where there's no way the corporates themselves could have made innovations or savings that explain their excess profit. But what does partially explain it is the higher prices everybody is paying. And uh, that's something that government needs to deal with. When will this become green policy? Is this something you want to be talking about in the lead up to the next election in the same way we talked about wealth tax last election? Uh, yeah, definitely. The reason we're putting out this paper now is because we want to hear from New Zealanders about the specific design, how we deal with this situation where we can see a few big corporates, about 20, are profiting from our current circumstances. What's the best way to design and deal with the situation to make sure the economy is fair and working for those uh, New Zealanders who are struggling to make ends meet. I can anticipate what the Finance Minister will say, who is your potential uh, partner next election, and he won't be interested in it. What's your message to him? Uh, I'm, I w would be really surprised that a Finance Minister wouldn't be interested in more revenue that can help pay for those core I mean, government at, services. Looking <laughs> at the books, though, the tax take was higher than anticipated last time, so maybe, maybe he's good. It is, but I think all New Zealanders know that you know, if you, we want really good public services and if we want government to be able to invest to help us tackle the climate crisis um, to ensure that New Zealanders are able to pay their electricity bills and to pay their rent. Actually, we do need greater government investment in some things. And the level of revenue that would be raised is actually greater than the operating allowance for the next budget. So, I mean, it would make a significant difference. We could pay for more insulation. We could pay for those housing upgrades that are needed to make sure that uh, kids aren't sleeping in bedrooms that are six degrees overnight. And that, say, that benefits the whole system as well, because that means fewer ED trips. So, you know, there's a, there's a case for government investment. There's a case for free public transport, for example. That's going to benefit New Zealanders. And these big corporates, they're still going to be making money. After the break, can the protests rocking Iran become a new revolution that brings down the regime? Welcome back. 
Earlier this week, two New Zealanders were released from Iran after being held for several months. It came at an exceedingly delicate time for the Iranian regime, which has been rocked by massive women-led protests following the death in custody of a young woman. Mazir Bahari has seen the inside of an Iranian prison cell. As a journalist, he was detained during protests in 2009, suffering torture during his 118 days in jail. I spoke to him late last night and started by asking him about the last time heavy protests hit Iran. In 2009, you saw millions of people who came to the streets and silently and peacefully asked for the regime, asked the regime to hear their voices. They were, of course, brutalized. Hundreds of people were in prison, including myself. And what was very interesting in 2009 was that people still had some hope in reforming the system. They did not want to topple the supreme leader of Iran, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. But of course, like most uh, authoritarian regimes, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei and his cohorts did not listen to people and continue to brutalize people since 2009, even harsher than before. So when uh, the young girl Mahsa Amini was beaten by the morality police and went into coma and eventually, unfortunately, died two days later on September 16th, that really triggered an anger among the uh, majority of, I think, young Iranian, especially young Iranian women, because they could see themselves as potential Mahsas. What happened to Mahsa could happen to any of them. They could be arrested, brutalized, and maybe sometimes killed by the morality police or other parts of the security apparatus. And that is why we see this uh, widespread protest. But the protest, even though it is started and it is still led by women in Iran, it's not only about uh, the hijab or the women's rights. It's about people's rights as citizens of their country. What we, have, we are hearing two main slogans in the streets of Iran these days death to the dictator and woman life freedom, meaning that people of Iran, the majority of Iranians, they want women to be respected in Iran. They want life, the sanctity of their lives to be respected in Iran so not everyone can take them into custody, detain them, torture them, imprison them and kill them. And that is the thing that's that's what government thinks it can do with people's lives and freedom. People just want to be free citizens of their country. You have personal experience of this. You were imprisoned. Why are you're also Canadian? Why are foreign nationals targeted and imprisoned and held? Iranian government sees every citizen of the country as a subject, not a citizen. And then when you become a dual citizen with a different passport, then you also become a commodity. So as a commodity, you can be exchanged for something else. Uh, when I was arrested, I was arrested along with three or four other uh, dual nationals. And for each of us, they wanted to send a message to uh, different groups of people. So I was a filmmaker and a journalist in Iran working with foreign media, Newsweek, BBC, Channel 4. And by arresting me, they wanted to send a message that this can happen to you if you do it again. But eventually, uh, especially after 2016, when they exchanged the uh, four 
dual uh, Iranian American, dual national Iranian Americans for billions of dollars, they realize that well, they can make some money. So as a result, they've been doing that for the past. Uh, they've been taking dual nationals hostage for uh, for just uh, for profit or for some uh, political or diplomatic gains or release uh, so uh, Iranian uh, imprisoned inside uh, different countries. So I'm not sure what really happened to the two uh, citizens of New Zealand who were held in Iran, who were detained in Iran, and as far as we know, they were not imprisoned. But I am certain, I am I can say that with total confidence that a deal was made. I mean, they may deny it, the government of New Zealand may deny it, but knowing the Iranian government, knowing the mentality of the Iranian government, who think, who look at every person, every human being as a commodity, I can assure you that a deal was made. Because as you say, the details are quite light on their experience, but what we have been told from sources that they were treated well, they were not imprisoned, and that they were by and large looked after even though they weren't able to leave Iran. That's quite different from your experience. What, what was that like for you? Well, uh, as a foreigner, you are respected, and because you're a commodity, you are usually kept uh, well. You know, at least they don't uh, uh, touch your face. And uh, what what distinguishes Iranian government from other Middle Eastern dictatorships is that they know that psychological torture can be much more effective than physical torture. So while I was in prison, what they wanted me to do was to confess that I was spying for the United States, Israel, Britain, and they said that Newsweek, the magazine that I was working for, was also an intelligence uh, agency. So while they were torturing me psychologically and also uh, I mean, I went through something different from uh, many others because it was a very uh, extraordinary situation, similar to what is happening right now in Iran. So I endured a lot of physical torture as well, but they never touched my face because they wanted the face to be kept uh, intact for to be able to confess. So uh, what's then average, what, I mean, there are thousands of prisoners in Iran, and I think we uh, journalists or activists who are kind of celebrity prisoners are relatively uh, treated much better than uh, unknown prisoners. Um, I went through a very harsh time in prison in Iran, but I'm sure that compared to, and I know that compared to many of the young people who are arrested in prisons in Iran, who are being tortured, beaten up uh, on an hourly basis in prison in Iran. Uh, we are hearing about situations where uh, 30 uh, prisoners are kept in a room that's only for two or three people. Some people have to, have to I'm sorry to say that, but they have to urinate on each other in order to be able to release themselves, relieve themselves. It's just that the situation is impossible when you think about it. And that's why I'm thinking that, you know, the situation is untenable. The government of Iran does not have the resources to keep this going for a long time. And when you think about the other cases in history, for example, in Poland, when they, stated the, they announced the state of emergency in 1981, the government of Poland collapsed within eight years because they 
ran out of resources to keep the dictatorship intact. And, I th and I'm sure that something like that will happen in Iran. So while I'm very pessimistic and sad about the short-term uh, outcome of what may happen and you know, the, in Iran, I'm very hopeful in the long-term because, especially because women of Iran, especially young women of Iran are leading this movement. One thing I did want to get your thoughts on, uh, Television New Zealand, among with other media outlets, were asked not to report on the two New Zealanders because we were told that they would be in danger if we did. Do you think quiet diplomacy is the way to go in these situations, or what are your thoughts on that? I know it wasn't quiet for you. You had very strong advocates in the form of uh, Hillary Clinton uh, and also your media outlet. Yeah. So in this case, it obviously works because they have been released and they are out of Iran now. But in the majority of cases, especially for dual nationals, people who have Iranian passport and other passport or uh, Iranian citizens, it is better to publicize their plight as soon as possible. Because what happens is that in the first few days, they put a lot of pressure on the prisoner in order to confess against themselves. And then when they confess against themselves, they use that confession in the court against that prisoner. So it is very important to publicize the arrest and the detainment of the prisoner as soon as possible. But I guess you have to consult with the families. The families have to be notified. They have to be, uh, they have to give their blessing for the publicity. And in the case of these uh, two New Zealanders, it obviously the quiet diplomacy work, but in most cases it does not work. And we, um, most of the dual national or foreign national uh, prisoners that we see in Iran, they have been suffering because of quiet diplomacy in the first few days. Just finally, you were born in Tehran. Do you think you will ever set foot there again? You know, yesterday I was I was in a conference in Taiwan and I flew over Iran and it was the first time that I saw Iran, uh, you know, that close. And it really, really uh, saddened me that I have to uh, fear that you know that the that there's something uh, on the plane may you know happen and they have to land in Iran and I am a, basically I can be treated like an enemy in uh, Iran. I have a sixteen and a, I have a sixteen and a half uh, year sentence against me that which was uh, issued in absentia. But as I said before, I am really hopeful for the long-term future of Iran. And by long-term, I'm talking about five to 10 years. I think that this regime uh, will change, and it will change for the better, especially because of, the, of my faith in the women of Iran and the young people of Iran who are leading this movement. So I'm quite uh, hopeful that I will see Iran uh, in the next decade or so. Kuamutu, that's Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. For the team here in the studio and in the control room, thank you. Hey, Teta Wiki, Jack Tame will be back with you next Sunday with an interview with the Prime Minister.
Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.